If you have a Bible, please open it up to Matthew chapter 8, where we're just continuing on with the story that Matthew has crafted about the early life of Jesus and his ministries. And if you've been here the last three weeks, Matthew intentionally drew up story uh, that has outlined Jesus' attention towards those who are on the fringes, whether that be an outsider, the leper, a Gentile, or a female, and how he brought those people from the darkness of their worlds into the center of his story and brought light to their darkness. In doing so, he lives out the words of truth that he spent a good portion of time on the hillside. We know it as the Sermon of the Mount, where he outlines a life that is beautiful, a life that is oriented around the eternal, unshakable kingdom that Jesus started when we look at Scripture, I want you guys to just, I want to pause just for one second and say, why does the Bible still matter to us? Why does it matter that we have these stories of Jesus? And how does the story of Him calming a storm eons ago, how does that have anything to do with me? How does that have anything to do with my challenges? And so for us to get into that, I want to I actually just take a second and, and acknowledge, like, the reason that old, the, the scriptures, 2,000 years old, matter is Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so as we look at the scriptures, our primary goal isn't to find necessarily what we ought to do or what we ought not to do. That is a function, but it is not the function. The, the function is to search the scriptures to see the unchangeable glory of Jesus. So as he acts in these stories, so he acts to us today. Does that make sense? So we're just looking at who Jesus is. And then we're asking the question, Jesus, if you really are this way, what does that look like for you to be who you are towards me and my story? Make sense? Great. All right. So um, to start off, you know me, I really like to not just merely talk at you, but to allow the word of God to be transformative, to truly learn is to be impacted and changed. And so I want to just invite you to just close your eyes right now and um, think for a second. You just heard the scripture about a storm, about mess, about just this overwhelming circumstance. And if you're visual like me, you could even envision yourself in the middle of a lake with lots of wind, lots of waves, and you're terrified. You're overwhelmed, and you cannot figure out a way through it. If I were to say, if you were to utilize that vision of storm, uncontrollable, fear-inducing, anxiety-evoking, What are the things in your life that would come to your mind's eye as stressful, overwhelming, a looming storm, chaotic, fear-inducing? In the Gospel of Matthew, we have a story where Jesus images his character towards our storms. I'll read it once again to you. You can open your eyes and read scripture for yourself. 
And when he got into the boat, his disciples followed him, and behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the water. This is the only time in all of Scripture that a boat is described as being swamped. That is literally the waves are overwhelming the bow and breaking into the boat. The boat is being submerged. When they cry out to Jesus and say, hey, we're sinking, it's not, hey, we're a little afraid, we could sink, and they're being emotional. No, they are literally going down. And so when Jesus is woken from his sleep, there is this moment of tension. Jesus, what were you doing when you were sleeping? Like, how is that possible? For one, it's beautiful because if we've been tracking through the gospel story, it shows both the the nature of Jesus, who stinking guy was tired, man. He'd been doing ministry. He just like healed a whole bunch of demoniac people. He had healed uh, Peter's mother-in-law after, uh, after going off to be at the, the religious um, gathering of the day at the synagogue. I mean, the guy is tired. I mean, after church for an hour and a half, like I'm, I'm tired, you know what I mean? But this is, you know, 15 hours later. And he finds himself in the middle of the darkness going across the Sea of Galilee. And if you know the geography in this space, you know that there's, um, this is 700 feet below sea level. And so there's some strange things going on there. But also there is a wind that can come up very quickly and easily and whip down the ravines onto the Sea of Galilee. And it, can actually, it was actually very well known and still is for being a lake that the weather can change on a dime. And it can go from very docile to very stormy and dangerous in a moment. And so the people who were fishermen on the sea, they were well-versed in trying to know different ways of overcoming the wind and the sea while they're in the middle fishing. And so even if you were to look back and, and research a picture of one of the boats, the way that they engineered their boats was intended to help them both succeed in fishing, but also maximize the wind and the waves and to be able to survive in such a uh, environment like the lake. And so there was technology that they were depending on. When they set out with Jesus, he says, follow me. And they're like, okay, I'm getting in the boat. They're depending upon the technology that they had at hand um, to ensure their safety if a, a, a storm was to whip up as it could have happened. Not only that, they were, they were relying upon their experience. If you know that the people who were getting on the boat with Jesus, this isn't all the disciples at this time, this is the 12 disciples that he had called to himself, and they're getting on the boat. Well, if you know, at least four of the disciples, I believe it is, were weathered fishermen who would have known well and had tons of experience of walking through common day, yes, but scary storms on the sea. So they had this experience, but also they had technology. And all of this wrapped together enabled them to go into this darkness and cross the sea, even though they didn't know what was coming. And yet we see that their trust in the boat or technology and their trust in their experience to get them through was not enough. This boat became tossed by the ocean or by the sea. Waves were crashing in, they were literally sinking, and they cry out, Lord, save us, we are perishing. I love the word of uh, Frederick Bruner where he says, Jesus, notice, to the disciples is Lord in this story, not merely a teacher. And last week, if you were here, we were talking about how oftentimes it's easier to call Jesus teacher than it is call him Lord because Lord demands our allegiance. Teacher is someone who we can take a bit of his teachings and leave the rest. But notice, when you're in terror, 
When your world is flipped upside down, you don't want a teacher. You don't want Jesus to be someone to give you advice. You want him to be Lord God of creation. Amen? And so they call out to him, Lord, and he is such a beautiful presence to them. Yet there is a bit of comic um, tension in the story. Like we see that the the situation is, is unprecedented. So it's not merely just another storm, because if it was another storm, they wouldn't have been afraid like they were this night. There is an extra layer to this where Matthew describes it as a great storm was on the sea. And so we see that in a moment of unprecedented conditions, something more than technology and experience is required. Do we see that in the story? In unprecedented circumstances, more than our experience and our best technology is required. Our best practices will fail when circumstances go against what we have in mind. We just finished a book. It's called An Unanxious Presence by Mark Sayers, and he discusses the difference in, in how the, the world is shifting from an industrial um, uh, world to being a more networked world, where when the, during the Industrial Revolution, the, the main thing was trying to create systems to ensure positive outcomes or to maximize production. And the church kind of picked up on that, where we tried to be production-oriented churches, where we tried to mass-produce Christians. And in a world that has gone sideways, we're recognizing the frailty of that practical um, way of going uh, to li- or viewing life. He says the, life, the world is no longer just a complicated world that needs to be problem-solved. It is a complex world where we need a very new and different way of approaching raising our children, forming our families, building our churches, pursuing Jesus, and making his kingdom grow. In a world where there is influences from every angle, we need something more than what we've had in the past. To see our children thrive, we need more than programming. We need more than uh, Bible school lessons. We need the presence of God to invade their lives. We need to form within our own hearts, not merely go to another Bible study or walk through another program. We need to be people who have the resources of heaven invested in our souls to create within us the microcosm of Jesus, the very presence of heaven within us. So that as we bind ourselves together and trust Jesus in the midst of the storm, we will stand fast and have the calm of Jesus in the middle of the storm. That is my hope and ambition for our time this evening, is for us to discover who it is that Jesus is and to glean from him his ways and to follow in his footsteps to find a way of being the calm presence in the midst of a stormy world. Look at this. It's quite entertaining, actually. If you're to look at Matthew 8, 24b, the second half of the verse, it says, the boat was being swamped by every wave. The fishermen, the disciples, they're terrified. They're crying. They've been trying to bail out the water. They've been trying to push against the wind. They've tried all of their plans to overcome the storm, and they've all failed. They're terrified, and where is Jesus? He's asleep. 
Interestingly enough, I think Matthew actually weaves this into the story because if you remember the, uh, the text just above this in the, or the paragraph above where Jesus says, foxes have holes, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Literally, Jesus' only place to find rest is in the middle of a storm on his way to the other side where he's just going to get more and more interaction. Jesus embodies his teaching. And so we see him asleep and we see this mix of the divinity where there's a serenity to Jesus where he, gets, he can have a peace in the middle of a storm, but the humanness where he wears out and we can identify that where they're like overwhelmed and just need rest. Matthew 25, 26, if you look at that verse, it says, And they went and woke him up, save, save us, Lord, they said, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid? Oh, you of little faith. I can only imagine what I would say if I was on that boat. Why am I afraid? Why are you not afraid? Like, why are, why are we afraid? Are you Look around, Jesus, the great storm. We're in the middle of a sea. It's dark outside. There's massive waves. We're taking on water, Jesus. Are you kidding me? Why are we afraid? Why are you not afraid? Oh, you of little observation, right? You want to call me of little faith? Like, look around, Jesus. But the question is to be held, like, who is more in touch with what's really happening, Jesus or the disciples? Whose view is more consistent with the ultimate reality of life? When asked, Jesus, why? Why are you not afraid? We can point to a number of different things. Firstly, we see that he had this beautiful, serene, calm, that throughout Scripture, it's indicative of those people who can sleep well as those who are trusting faithfully in God. There's a number of Psalms that reference this, the shortest of which I'll share so to keep our time down. Psalm 4.8, in peace I will both lay down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So he had this calm that came from trust. Not only that, his primary filter was that of the kingdom to which he was bringing. If you'll recall in Matthew chapter 6, he talks about anxiety, he talks about worry. He tells his disciples nothing more than he himself is willing to practice. He says in verse 31, I apologize, it's not on the screen. In verse 31 of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles, the unbelievers, the faithless, Seek after all of these things. And your heavenly Father, He knows that you need them all. And then He says this, but seek first the kingdom. Jesus had an orientation around the kingdom of heaven that He was ushering in that allowed Him to walk into circumstances of the kingdom of man, this temporary fallen world and have a calm that reflected the calm of the kingdom of heaven that he brought with him to earth. Not merely that, not merely the kingdom, but Jesus himself knew that he was not merely a participant of the kingdom, but he was a king himself, and as scripture calls him, the Lord of the land and the sea. You see, Jesus speaking to the wind and the sea 
and making it still or go silent. This is actually a prophetic word about the way that God is and the power that he has to overcome that which terrifies normal people. If we were to look at Psalm 89, 8, it describes what God is like and his power over creation. It says this, Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging sea. And when its waves rise, you still them. Psalm 107, 26, they mounted up to heaven. That is the waves. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. And they reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wits end. And then they cried to the Lord in their trouble. And he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still and the waves of the sea were hushed. And then they were glad that the waters were quiet and he brought them to their desired haven. You see, Jesus was not dependent upon the boat nor the experience of the fishermen on the craft to keep him secure. He was oriented around the kingdom of God, the faithfulness of the Father, who he knew his hour had not yet come. Jesus was tapping into something that was unshakable, even when the world around him was shaking. He trusted in his sovereign Father, who is all-powerful and in control. This is a fascinating story. Because on one side, you have these guys that I can identify with easily, these disciples. They're terrified. They're not in control. And yet, you have Jesus, who is calm, serene, and almost strangely confident. You see, when Jesus comes close to us and, and brings the light of the dawn, so to speak, and he actually... His light, it reveals what truly is. It reveals what truly is in us as his followers. Think about those words. I would hate to hear these words. Oh, you of little faith. How many of you guys like have like a picture of Jesus like shaking his finger? Right? I struggle with that. And Jesus says it a lot. Like, oh, you of little faith. And as I studied it, it's actually one Greek word that different translators use whole sentences to try and capture the meaning. And so it could be everything from, oh, you have little faith, to, man, your faith is small. That's how broad the interpretation of that Greek word can be. Doesn't that sound so different? Both have the honesty, both have the statement of saying what is, but one sounds nasty, one sounds Judgy, one sounds condemning. Am I the only one that feels that? Yeah? Okay. I'll just have my moment here. That's cool. So regardless of whichever way you want to interpret it, the understanding is that Jesus is actually calling attention to what was always there in his disciples' hearts. The amount of faith that they trusted in him. And he's calling it to attention. 
Notice this other strange thing. They wake him up. Jesus, we're dying here. What does he do? Does he stand up, jump, and shout at the water again? And he say, be still. Is that what he does? What's the next thing that he does? What is that? Look at your Bibles, please. I'm going to get some water because my whistle's getting dry. What's he do? He talks to the disciples. What? Hello, the wind is blowing. We are dying. We are sinking Jesus literally right now. Stop calling me out. I know my faith is small. Why does Jesus prioritize what's going on within them before he confronts what is going on outside of them? I would argue it's a statement of significance to Jesus, where he is more concerned with the lack of faith in him than he is in the storm that's going on around him. He's a first responder, and he's trying to stop the bleeding, and he's going for what's going on in their soul before he fixes the chaos. Is that how it works, Chris? You're a first responder. Is that, do you go for the most important thing first? So Jesus, he, he prioritizes going for the very core of what's happening within his disciples. He sees it as more hazardous for them to have a hidden doubt and disbelief. It is more hazardous for them to have that than for them to be in the middle of this tragic situation in the middle of the sea. Disbelief was the greater risk than the storm. Let's take a minute and reflect here. This is where, for me, this, this story kind of gets interesting. If, if we were to look back in the passage where it says, and a great storm came. Great storm, the word is dynamic, not great but the word storm, it's actually the word seismos in Greek, which is where we get the whole earthquake language from. Seismic movement. And it's actually spoken of only three times in the gospel. Here, there is an earthquake-ish storm. It is rattling the circumstances, the life, the reality. The other time it's referenced is the earthquake when Jesus breathes his last breath and the earth shakes and a crack shoots through the temple and destroys the curtain separating man from God. The third earthquake comes in Matthew where we're told that as the angel came to Move the stone, an earthquake shook it away. How fascinating is it that Jesus allows and moves in moments of the earth shaking and he becomes the stabilizing factor that as he died, he was at peace and entrusted his soul. It is finished. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And as he rose from the dead, showing that death couldn't shake his life. You see, Jesus, he is the calm in the midst of the storm. 
And I know that for you and I, we've been through a season where it seems like everything in life has shaken. We have been through seismic shifts in our education, in our work world, in our relationships, in our society, in our friend groups. We have had seismic shifts in our life in the last few years. Yeah? Yeah. I don't think it's a small thing that one of the primary things that this COVID thing did is it, it pulled back the beer goggles of society. Yeah, I said beer goggles of society that made us believe that we were more in control of our health, of our success, of our mastery over nature than we really were. I think this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's allowing them to see that, yes, you need saving even in my presence. You need me. It's one thing to see Jesus do a miracle in Peter's mother-in-law, in a Samaritan, or in a centurion, but it is another thing to actually have the very miraculous presence of God rescue you and show you who he truly is that he's not merely that way to them, but he is faithful and a rescuer and a stable, firm foundation for you. That's a different ballgame. That's a different ballgame. And Jesus is determined to not merely make people who follow him in fair weather seasons Many of the commentators on this passage actually describe it as almost this image of what discipleship is. Jesus says, come follow me. The disciples follow him and then the journey across the sea is the life of discipleship as we go forward with Jesus. You see, we need to have our eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus We've had a storm that has removed a lot of our um, allusions to our ability to control certain situations. The veneer around ma- of mastery has been removed. Things that we had hoped f- that would give us security, they've shown up to be vulnerable. We had hoped that things were dependable. Many of them have failed. And so here we are. In the middle of a storm, technology is not going to fix this. The experiences we've had, they're not going to help us where we're going. We need Jesus. We need Jesus to be the very orienting centerpiece of our life. Because where Christ is wanting to take us, it's not something that we can manufacture where God is trying to move His kingdom, it's not something that we can plan to such a degree that we will be able to manufacture the results and guarantee success. That is not the kingdom. What Jesus says is, listen, know yourself. Repent of the disbelief. If you are struggling to truly take me at my words, repent of the disbelief and trust me to be who I truly am. Because who he was in the middle of that sea is who he is in the middle of our life right now. 
a calming, beautiful presence. The very calmness of heaven among us on earth. And he beckons us to not hold tight to the things of earth that we believe are going to be the guarantee for safety, success. But instead, hold tight to him, his kingdom. I love the author of Hebrews who says, Therefore, let us be grateful that we have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Jesus was the only thing that was not shaken in that sea. So he stands in our midst as our Lord and Savior, unshaken by the cross, unshaken by the grave, and unshaken by the fears that you and I have in our life. Steadfast. So I don't know what storm you have in your mind, but I know that Jesus... He wants to unearth our inner frailties even before He removes the storm. Matthew 8.26, only after He had addressed the disciples' heart, only then He rose and rebuked the winds and the sea. And there was a great calm. Do you see there's like a little echoey thing going on? There was a great storm. And there's a great calm. Oh, Jesus, that your great calm would invade us. That your great calm from your presence would would overshadow and, and make a joke, Lord God, of the calmness that we pursue through possessions, relationship, through other idols that we try and just enjoy and numb ourselves and run from the issue and try and survive, God, that your, your great calm, Lord God, would ruin us for anything else. That the stillness of soul, the depth of peace, it would make us achingly strong and beautifully bound to Jesus. Oh, but only a storm will drive you to that place. Only a terrifying circumstance where you are out of energy. You've tried everything. You've worked to try and overcome the wind. You've paddled your guts out and you still have fallen short. And there Jesus is found right next to you. That the great calm. From that, that is where the kingdom of Jesus is birthing what he's doing in our lives. Many of us, we've seen the calm and experienced the joy and known that in moments. It'll be so beautiful when that calm is never ending, non-disturbed, eternal peace. 2 Corinthians 4.6 says, For God said, Let light shine out of darkness. And He has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. Oh, that we would see in Jesus the glory of God, the light of the world, the beacon of hope in the midst of darkness. 
and in so embracing, allowing Him to be our centerpiece. That no matter where we travel, we know where He is. He becomes our shelter. He becomes our defense. I'll close with this. And then we're going to pray. Um, For Jesus to be your shelter, for Him to be your hope, for us to turn away from disbelief and turn towards who He truly is and apprehend Him, it requires a belief of faith that looks like living under His care, not creating your own. This faith looks like trusting Jesus as our refuge, the place we run to first when things go sideways. Faith in Jesus looks like running to Him, hiding in Him, trusting in His sufficiency. Faith in Jesus looks like centering our life around Him and His kingdom so that when life shakes and shifts, and nothing is certain. We know exactly where Jesus is. I grew up in a little place called Lebanon, Oregon. And in Lebanon, there's not many mountains close by, but there's a a hill called Blueberry Hill. And no matter where you're at in town, you can be at the lake, you can be at the river, you can be in the fields, and you can look up and you can see where Blueberry Hill is. And it's orientating to know where it is. If I know where Blueberry Hill is, okay, well then my house is there. My school is there. There's where 7-Eleven is. In the same way, Jesus is intended to be a center point for our lives, where we keep our eye on Jesus in the midst of the challenges, looking back, okay, Jesus, where are you at? Where are you at? You're with me. You're with me, right? I trust you to be who you were then to be who you are now. My prayer is that he will be a point of reference, an unmoving and unsteady place for everything else to circulate around. Jesus, the center of our life, that we may live as the calm of heaven with him on earth. That's what I got. Amen.